Fads come and go, and nowhere more than in the world of weight loss. That's why Noom's weight management programs are made to last. Noom uses science and personalization to help you manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps you build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up for your trial today. Welcome, everyone, to Long Ball Legacies. My name is Daniel Port, and we're here on the Pitcherless Podcast Network, where every week we take a look at the players throughout baseball history who have helped shape the worldwide story of baseball and the myths and legends that are born out of it and really tell the tale of the game that we love so much. Thank you for joining us here today on this Friday. It's a beautiful day. Last week, if you recall, I talked about the recently passed Vita Blue, and it was a fascinating story of the of a young phenom and an early peak followed by trouble with drugs and addiction and things that derailed his career. Still ended up one of the greatest black pitchers of all time. And so I was trying to think of who to talk about this week. And while I didn't want to find another story of a career derailed by the same things, I thought to myself, what's a pitcher who had this incredible early peak and fell off? And one of the first names that came to mind was Oral Hershiser. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm really excited to tell you his story. And I I feel like no matter what team you root for, like every team has that beloved past his prime veteran pitcher who came to the team after their heyday and left an impression on that respective franchise forever, regardless. Even if it wasn't the franchise they starred for, even if it wasn't the, the team they pitched their best for. I think of like Greg Maddox pitching for the Cubs in the early aughts, Zach Greinke pitching for the Astros, Tom Glavin with the Mets, or even like Phil Negro with the Yankees. These are all pitchers who, who made their heyday with other teams and then went on to pitch their latter years for other teams and left an impression uh, on those teams. And now I am a lifelong Guardians fan who grew up watching those juggernaut teams of the 1990s. And so for me, that pitcher was Oral Hershiser. He was a, a member of the rotation for both World Series runs they made in the 90s, both in 95 and 1997. But when Hershiser came to Cleveland in 1995, 10-year-old Dan really knew only three things. One, Oral Hershiser like a dork. Two, he was supposed to be one of the smartest pitchers in the league. And three, that he had the record for the most consecutive innings pitched without giving up a run. Now, at that age, I thought that meant we were getting a pitching god. And while the then 36-year-old Hershiser wasn't that anymore, he was beloved the three seasons he spent in Cleveland and was one of my favorite pitchers for the team that you know solidified my baseball fandom. It's a pitcher that means a lot to me, specifically in my baseball story, but why am I bringing up Hershiser now? I like sticking with a theme after talking about Vita Blue last week, and it might not seem that way at first, Blue and Hershiser have a lot more in common than you think. The thing 10-year-old Dan didn't know was that Hershiser, while he wasn't a true phenom like Blue getting started so young, Hershiser was a young pitcher who took the world by storm upon his debut and generated a huge amount of buzz while putting up an all-time eight-year stretch as a pitcher, including one of the greatest single seasons of all time for a starting pitcher, and then had their career fall apart earlier than expected, just like Blue. They also ended up with incredibly close career numbers, as you'll see later on, and they trigger a very similar discussion about whether or not they should be in the Hall of Fame and have very similar borderline Hall of Fame cases. Heck, today's episode will even include a fascinating discussion, or at least I think it's fascinating, about how we need to look at players' performances in the high-offense steroid era of the 90s versus other eras. It's really a lot to look at when we talk about Hershiser. He's a one-time Cy Young Award winner, three-time All-Star, and World Series MVP. Hershiser pitched for 18 seasons in the majors, primarily with the Dodgers, Guardians, Giants, and Mets, 
where he threw 3,130.1 innings pitched, which is 119th all-time, and his 59th since 1950. His 204 wins is 108th all-time and 54th since 1950, while his 2014 strikeouts is 83rd all-time and 71st since 1950. I've been including the number since 1950. I probably should have done this for Blue, too, but I didn't think of it till this week that sometimes certain numbers like innings pitched or wins or stuff like that are very highly accentuated before World War II because pitchers, bullpens really didn't exist in the same way. Pitchers threw massive inning counts. It's hard to compare the two. So a lot of times when I give all-time numbers, I'm going to start trying to also do pre and post World War II, so to say. Now, his 51.3 war is 96th all-time amongst pitchers and is 51st since 1950. He had a career of 3.48 ERA while pitching across the craziest offensive era in baseball history to go along with a 1.26 whip, a 112 ERA+, plus, and a 3.69 FIP. He also won a gold glove and a silver slugger award as well. And when you look at it, you can see the groundwork for a Hall of Fame case there even if it is a bit of a borderline one, especially when you consider he's one of the greatest postseason pitchers of all time. Don't worry, we'll get there in a minute, but I want to build to that. Uh, and when you add in the consecutive scoreless innings record, and you, you really do start to see an argument for his induction. In fact, in case you're skeptical, let's do our thing here. Let's take a track year to year through Hershiser's career, and let's see if I can convince you. Because I really, I the more and more I do this, the more I feel pretty strongly about it. But first, let's take a dramatic storytelling break. I have a theater background. It feels right. Uh, Let's pay some bills, and then we'll get right back into it. When it comes to weight management, we tend to put our focus on what we eat. But Noom's approach puts the focus on why we eat. And that's a game changer. Noom uses science and personalization so you can manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps you build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. And they help you understand the science behind your eating choices and why you have those cravings. Noom's personalized courses are easy to follow and will help grow your confidence with tools you can put into practice on day one. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. And based on a sample of 4,272 Noomers, 98% say Noom helps change their habits and behaviors for good. Try Noom today and see the results for yourself. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up for your trial today. Welcome back. Oral Leonard Hershiser IV, son of Oral Leonard Hershiser III and Mildred Hershiser, was born in Buffalo, New York, but mostly grew up in Detroit, Michigan, and then spent his teenage years in Toronto, up in Canada. Like a good Canadian child, he showed a proficiency for hockey and baseball at an early age, setting multiple records for his high school. As a a pitcher, most of those records actually still stand, apparently. And upon graduation, he was given a partial scholarship to Bowling Green State University in Ohio, where after a slow, kind of rocky start, he excelled making the Midwest Conference All-Star team his junior year. He even threw a uh, a no-hitter against Kent State, which might not mean much to to y'all but where i'm from that's big news that was a pretty big rivalry that this got him on the radar for major league scouts not very high but we put him on the radar at least and in 1979 he was drafted in the 17th round by the los angeles dodgers now scouts were not particularly high on hershiser's prospects according to a scouting report i believe i found this quote in a 2004 ESPN article by Alan Schwartz. He quotes an unidentified scout that said, no commander control, fastball lacking velocity for a big man, doesn't throw curveball properly but has possibilities, didn't like arm action as he labors through the throwing zone, deliveries inconsistent, through several wild pitches, looks like he rattles easily, questionable makeup with questionable physical question marks in a 21-year-old leaves me with an empty feeling about him which is pretty, pretty condemning uh, scouting report. And in retrospect, considering Hershiser go on to become a world-class pitcher whose calling card was his command and control with a reputation for being a highly intelligent pitcher. It's a jarring scouting report to read, obviously, in hindsight. Uh, but that, that was the opinion on Hershiser at the time. 
And I'm especially surprised by, by stuff about his makeup and about those things that were prevalent uh, questions at the time. It's really interesting to see where he was beginning at compared to where we know Hirschhauser will end. And this makes it even more surprising than when he starts out a ball and he dominates. He goes 4-0 with a 2.09 ERA and a 1.16 whip across four starts and 15 appearances with 33 strikeouts. In 1980, he gets bumped up to double A, where he pitches pretty well with a 3.55 ERA, but struggles to keep hitters off the base paths with a troubling 1.64 whip across 109 innings pitched with 75 strikeouts. He stays in double A for the 1981 season and continues to struggle, throwing 102 innings with a 4.68 ERA and a 1.41 whip. Double A, he slowly and surely starts to see improvement as he stays in double a for the 1982 season he puts up a 3.71 era with a 1.49 whip across 123.2 innings pitched and at this point he's mostly operating out of the bullpen and at the time that's how the dodgers viewed him like long term they thought he was going to be coming for the uh, when they brought him up it would be out of the bullpen and he ends up uh coming up to AAA in 1983, and he looks much the same as he did in AA, with a 4.09 ERA, making 10 starts and 39 appearances out of the bullpen, and the whip still looks rough at 1.41 whip. And this will be the thing that you'll notice throughout Hershiser's career, is he wasn't a strikeout pitcher, and so, therefore, he was going to, you know, give up a lot of contact, and he was so dependent on keeping base runners off the base paths and getting you to do what he wants you to do. Not, not just blowing you by or overpowering you in that manner. And at this point, it almost looked like the scouts were going to be right after all with that early scouting report. But despite his struggles, the Dodgers actually call up Hershiser to the big leagues on September 1st, where he earned a two inning save in his debut and he would make eight more appearances on the year out of the bullpen as a whole, throwing eight innings with five strikeouts and holding things down to a 3.38 ERA despite a 1.63 whip. Now, while the Dodgers would win the NL East that year, Hershiser would not make the postseason roster, and it was clear he was really going to have to figure out a way to limit base runners if he was going to have a future in the majors. And he was giving up hits, he was walking guys. It was just a mess. That ERA was a bit of a smoke and mirrors problem. Now, here's the interesting thing, though. We say he has to learn how to limit base runners. He learns how to do exactly that. As always seems to be the case with these stories I, I love to tell, all it took was the right guru or the right coach or the right situation to, to, to really speak to the player and turn things around. And in this situation, that guru was Dodgers pitching coach Dave Wallace. Hershiser would go on a pitch in winter ball that year down in the Dominican, and it was there that Wallace would turn Oral into a pitcher. Wallace really took to Hershiser's mind, and he was convinced that there was a great pitcher there. He was quoted as having said, what sets him apart is his intelligence, said Wallace. He comes out knowing what he wants to do and makes the adjustments he has to make and makes them quicker than anyone I've ever seen. He'll adjust from pitch to pitch. It takes some pitchers an inning or two to figure out what they're doing wrong, he's really broken his pitching down, his mechanics opposing hitters. He watches and studies and just has a feel for pitching, which feels like that kind of thing that, you know, we weren't seeing in the results. Sometimes I like to say this a lot as an analytics guy, as a stats guy, and as a statistician, you often hear me say that the process often matters more than the results. And that's exactly what David Walsh is doing here. He's seeing the process. He's seeing this mind at work and says, I can make a picture out of that, even if we're not seeing the results yet. And it's a good thing he stuck with him because he, he not only fixes him here, but then transforms him into not just a, a good pitcher, but a star pitcher here. Now, heading into the 1984 season, a revamped Hershiser makes the Dodgers bullpen as their long reliever. He makes 25 appearances before injuries to several starters necessitates moving Hershiser to the starting rotation. Now, while he had largely struggled in the bullpen, throwing 42 innings with 41 strikeouts and a 4.29 ERA and a 1.60 whip, once he moved into the rotation, 
it all clicks into place. He makes 20 starts that season and excels, throwing 147.2 innings with 109 strikeouts with a 2.19 ERA and a .97 whip. Of those 20 starts, eight of them are complete games, and four of those games are shutouts. Almost half of them, that's like something like 40% of them, were complete games. That's that's incredible. That It's awesome for a rookie pitcher. Now, at one point in the season, he puts together a 62-inning stretch where he had a .73 ERA, giving him just five earned runs over that stretch. And in what was a preview of things to come, he had a streak within that run with 34.1 straight scoreless innings. That's how good he was once he moved to being a full-time starter. And it's interesting to ask why that clicked into place for him. Some You'll often hear a lot of people talk about the difference in mentality from being a starter to being a reliever and how it just takes sometimes a different personality and different mindsets and different skill sets. And that's all true, so maybe that's what's at play here. I also think that there's something to the idea that when you oftentimes you'll hear about a pitcher who does the opposite. He excels when moving from being a starter to the bullpen because he can shrink his repertoire down, really focus on perfecting just one to two pitches. And I mean, we, we talk about Mario Rivera or uh, Kenley Jansen, who basically threw a cutter like 80% of the time. You can do that when you're a reliever. And sometimes, so you'll see starters excel when they work backwards that way. And what I really think was, if you take Hurst's newfound control his pitching IQ, and he had revamped his curveball, and, and it was turned into an excellent curveball. Those things all play up better in a larger sample. It's all about pitch mixes and how you work with your catcher and all these different things that I think play to Hertzheiser's strengths more as a starter. And that's part of my theory as to why he did so much better in the rotation out of uh, the bullpen. But overall, Hertzheiser's fantastic in this rookie year. He puts up a what 189.2 innings with a 2.66 ERA and a 1.11 WHIP with 150 strikeouts. He finished third in the Rookie of the Year voting between Juan Samuel and winner Dwight Gooden. And uh, Gooden deserved it. He was worth a whopping 5.7 WAR while throwing more innings than Hershiser and leading the league in WHIP and strikeouts. While Hershiser had a very respectable 4.6 WAR that year. Like I said, it went to the right guy there. But I definitely think it'll, if, at the very least. Hersizers should have finished second in the Rookie of the Year voting, which might be semantics, but it matters, over Samuel, who was worth just 2.9 war that year. Now, on the whole, while Hersizer thrived, the injuries to the, the rotation that necessitated his move to the rotation really held back the Dodgers. And so they win just 79 games that year, and they finished fourth in the NL West. Now, if 1984 was a breakout season for Hershiser. He was just getting warmed up for 1985. He goes an astonishing 19-3 and across 34 starts while throwing 239.2 innings with a 2.03 ERA and a 1.03 whip. He throws nine complete games, five shutouts, and 157 strikeouts while walking just 68 hitters. He finishes third in the NL Cy Young voting that year, uh, which was correct, honestly. Despite his fantastic season, Hershiser was worth 5.9 war that year, while John Tudor was worth 8.1 war, and Dwight Gooden was worth an astonishing 12.2 war, over double Hershiser's war numbers. So, obviously, no no shame in finishing behind Gooden, who had that good of a season. In addition, he finishes 16th in MVP voting, and the Dodgers would actually end up finishing first in the NL West that year with 97 wins, which is quite a turnaround of almost 20 games. And the Dodgers go to the playoffs, and so for the first time in his career, Hershiser pitches in the playoffs. He makes two starts in the NLCS against the Cardinals, where he goes 1-0 with 15 innings pitched and a 3.52 ERA with five strikeouts. Game two was actually a complete game win, where he gave up just two runs, and then he also started game six where he gave four earned runs in 6.1 innings pitched. Uh, it was actually close enough to keep the Dodgers in, in a spot where they could win the game. But Tom uh, Neidenfauer uh, blew the game, and the Dodgers would end up losing the series. All in all, though, he gets a taste of the playoffs, had an excellent season. It's, just, it's one heck of a sophomore season and a great follow-up to his fantastic rookie year. Now... Unfortunately, though, 1986 would be a tough third year in the league for Hershiser. 
where he would go 14 and 14 over 231.1 innings pitched with a 3.85 ERA and his whip jumped all the way back up to 1.29 to go along with 153 strikeouts. And like I said before, Hershiser just, he wasn't a strikeout pitcher. He just didn't strike out enough hitters to be able to get away with allowing so many base runners. So when he struggled with his whip, you can see that he would really have a tough time. This is a, a bit more of a, a exception over this time period, but it's just worth noting that his margin for error was smaller. And in some ways, it makes what he's able to accomplish, frankly, even more impressive. But there were some questions of whether or not it was a, a short-term flash in the pan. It was rumored at the time that manager Timeless sort of felt he didn't have a tough enough attitude on the mound. And so he gave him the nickname Bulldog. I suppose to almost like speak that toughness into existence. And considering that at some point, Hershiser would gain a reputation worthy of that nickname, I guess it worked. Lasorda almost seemed like a bit of a Hershiser whisperer in general. Whenever it seemed like he'd do something that would drive most pitchers nuts... It worked with Hershiser. Hershiser was even quoted as saying, Tommy taught me a lot about pitching, he said. I didn't mind if he second-guessed my pitch selection because it was almost like a Socratic method. Why did you throw that? I, w- I would learn things like, don't throw off speed to a left-hander with a man on first base because he wants to hit the ball the right side anyways. Which, given Hershiser's reputation for thoughtfulness and intelligence regarding the art of pitching, it makes some sense as to why that approach appealed to him. Now, perhaps thanks to that approach, or maybe a testament to the work ethic and perseverance of Hershiser, he turns things around a big way in 1987, where he would lead the league with 264.2 innings pitched, with a 3.06 ERA, and a one, and 190 strikeouts, and a 1.21 whip. He threw a wild 10 complete games that season as well, and went 16-16 and 16 on the season. He was worth 6.4 war that season, and... Had a 2.42 ERA across 145 first half innings, which got him named to his first All-Star game. And he finished the season fourth in the Cy Young voting. Honestly, he was robbed that year. He really was. He was second in the NL in war amongst pitchers that year, as it went to Steve Bedrosian, the closer for the Phillies, who barely had a better ERA than Hershiser as a reliever. And while he saved 40 games, he threw just 89 innings. It was worth just 2.3 war. It seems like this would have been a no-brainer win for Hershiser if a stat like Ward existed back then. My guess is the reason he finishes in fourth is the 16 losses. That worked against him in the narrative aspect of the voting that really mattered still back then. And it's worth noting, though, if you look at those losses a little closer, eight of those losses, he in in eight of those losses, I should say, he gave up three runs or fewer. If that did factor in, I'm not sure it really should have. That seems more on his run support and his bullpen. But either way, he certainly shouldn't have finished fourth. He should have at least finished second, if not won the Cy Young that year. Uh, that's how good of a season he had. Just so many quality start losses. And is it, if you look at the overall record of the Dodgers that year, they won just 73 games. They missed the playoffs, obviously. So it's not shocking. Uh, and by the way, they won 73 games that year. So if you want to ask what kind of value did Hershiser have, he won 22% of the Dodgers' wins that year with 60 wins, which is just wild. Just by himself. Obviously not by himself. The whole team won those games. But you obviously get to see his value. Now, so far through all the years in Hershiser's career, and we've seen some excellent ones. We've seen some really good ones already. All of them were just a prelude to the 1988 season, which would go down as one of the greatest seasons by a pitcher ever, period. He led the league in innings pitched for the second season in a row, 267 innings, while leading the league with 23 wins and 15 complete games, 8 shutouts, and a fantastic 2.26 ERA, and a 1.05 whip with 178 strikeouts. Oh, and those 8 strikeouts? This is the season where Hershiser sets, rec- sets a record that stands to this day with 59 consecutive scoreless innings, breaking the, re- the record previously held by Don Drysdale. And a, a quick glance at the game logs for this reveal just how remarkable that season was. The streak started across the last four innings of a complete game on August 30th and then spanned the final six starts of the season for Hershiser. Now, I'll do the math for you. All six of those starts were complete game shutouts. All six of them. Including, by the way, in the final game, a 10-inning effort in that final game which is just wild. The story goes, this is uh, anecdotally, that 
Hershiser actually supposedly asked to be taken out of the game before going out for that 10th inning because out of respect for Drysdale. And everyone talked him into going back out and getting that 10th inning and setting the record. And when asked about it, I guess Drysdale said, man, if he had told me that, I, basically that I would have I kicked his butt. There's no way he's got to go back out there. Obviously, it was quite the accomplishment. It was, again, just six consecutive complete game shutouts is wild. It'd be one thing to do this spread out over eight or nine six-inning starts, but to do it over complete games is just wild. He averaged just five hits a game over that time period. He walked just nine hitters the entire time while striking out 34 hitters. Heck, actually, if you look a little further back even, those six games actually come on the heels of three previous consecutive complete games. So, in other words, you heard that right. He's He threw nine consecutive complete games to end the season. So it's not like he was at 100%. It's not even like he was at full strength. No pitcher, basically from the first pitch, is at 100%. And instead, he throws nine consecutive complete games to end the season. It's just insane. Over those nine consecutive games, he gets up just four earned runs over those nine complete games. I just, I, it might be like one of the most dominant stretches a pitcher's ever had, period. And that's just a pitcher stepping up in a big way for his team as they make the playoff push. And it certainly helped the Dodgers as they finished with 94 wins. They win the NL West. Hershiser went to his second consecutive All-Star game while running away with the signing voting. With 7.2 war that year, he had 2.2 war more than any other pitcher in the National League. So while he should have won regardless because of that insane streak, I mean, we love a good narrative, and that that is a compelling one. He deserved it on the whole regardless of the historical narrative. That's how good he was that season. Now, here's the crazy part. This storybook season isn't over yet. So the Dodgers make the playoffs, and in the NLCS against the Mets, Hershiser is fantastic. He pitches in four games, including three starts, throwing 24.2 innings with 15 strikeouts, giving up just three earned runs with a 1.01 whip and a complete game shutout uh, win in the decisive game seven. So it's just stepping up huge for, for his team. It's like a movie, and you're going to see me say that a bunch. It really is kind of thing in the movies and he's named the NLCS MVP and the Dodgers they head to the World Series now this is one of the greatest World Series of all time we see highlights from it all the time mostly immortalized by Kurt Gibson's uh, famous one-legged home run he hit while injured we'll get to Kurt Gibson one of these days uh, it's a fun story but it's worth noting that Hershiser was just as heroic in the World Series, uh, he makes two starts. He wins Game 2 and Game 6, with both games being complete game victories. Again, think about that. He threw two games, both complete game victories, in the World Series. It doesn't get more clutch than that. Overall, he throws 18 innings, giving up just two earned runs, with 17 strikeouts and a .72 whip. He's named World Series MVP, uh, well-deserved, uh, to cap off. Really, like I said, this might be the greatest full season run by a pitcher ever. Like, just period. At the very least, post-integration, it's hard to top, honestly. I think about it this way. He wins 23 games while setting a record for most consecutive scoreless innings to end the season. He goes and wins the Cy Young. He finishes sixth in MVP voting while winning a gold glove. And then he throws four complete games in the playoffs while winning NLCS and World Series MVP while throwing a complete game victory in the final game of the World Series to win it all. If you wrote a movie that went this way, you'd tell me it wasn't realistic enough. My favorite baseball movie of all time is The the Natural. I, I love that movie. And it's this bombastic tribute to to baseball and, and the myths and legends and the glory of the game. But it's so heavily stylized. It's meant to be big it's meant to be bigger than life it's not meant to be realistic and this is on that level is the thing a complete game victory in the final game of the world series is the equivalent of hitting that home run into into the lights at the end of the the natural and again you would have told me if i told you the story i didn't tell you it actually happened you'd tell me it wasn't realistic enough if this was a movie that's how good this season was for oral hershiser 
It's it's simply an all-timer season from a guy who was drafted in the 17th round, who all the scouts expected to wash out of the league. It really is the stuff that makes this sport the beautiful game that it is. It's the kind of stuff that we write myths and we write legends about. I just, I don't have the words for it to give it full justice. That's how good it was. Now, following up such a season is really an impossible task. And while there was no record setting done, overall he actually practically repeats the season. In 1989, throwing 256 and eight, uh, 256.2 innings, I should say. I don't want to don't want to uh, cost them those that point two, which leads the league for the third year in a row with a 2.31 ERA and a 1.18 WHIP and 178 strikeouts to go along with a 15 and 15 record, along with eight complete games. In some ways, there's actually even some numbers that say he was better in 1989. He led the league in ERA plus with a 149 mark, and he leads the league in FIP with a 2.77 mark, which is actually 30 points better than the year before. So there's an argument he may have pitched even better in 1989. He was an all-star for the third season in a row and finishes fourth somehow in Cy Young voting. Now, in my opinion, this should have been Hershiser's third consecutive Cy Young award, if we're being honest. He gets screwed for the second time in his career here. And he leads the league in pitching war by a full two war that year, but somehow finishes fourth. Doesn't track for me. And again, I'm going to guess it's because of his lead, league leading 15 losses, which again is whack because in 11 of those 15 losses, he gave up three or fewer runs, all while going more than six innings or at least six innings, I should say. I mean, heck, in four of those losses, he gave up just one earned run. So it seems stupid to hold that against him. It's tough because you have to think winning two or three Cy Youngs instead of one would have made Hershiser a shoe-in Hall of Famer. It wouldn't have guaranteed him. I and mean, when you go back and consider that, you've got guys like, we talk about Corey Kluber as a, as, as a borderline case or Johan Santana, who's a bit of a borderline case with two Cy Youngs and a couple no-hitters. I don't think it would have guaranteed it, but for me, you get him to two, especially if you get him to three, that's just automatic, especially when you consider then the record and that 1988 season and his playoff excellence. I mean, it just feels like a no-brainer to me. And it's just, I like, I feel, and hopefully at some point, the one of the committees will get Hershiser in. We just saw him do it for Jim Cat. I really think we're making some headway that way. So I, I hope, there's still hope at some point that we can get Hershiser in during his lifetime. But it's just, it would be a true tragedy uh, that he doesn't get the proper recognition that I think a modern perspective would have given him in the moment uh, and probably gotten him at least one more Cy Young out of those years. Now, either way, he wasn't likely helped that much either by the fact that the Dodgers won just 77 games that season and finished fourth in the NL West because we know that mattered back then as well. Now, I may have killed the suspense a little bit but in 1990, after leading the league in innings pitched for three consecutive seasons and surpassing 200 innings pitched for five consecutive seasons, in the offseason, Hershiser's shoulder falls apart. He pitches just 25.1 innings into the season before shutting things down. Uh, famous sports doctor, Dr. Frank Job, who is the who's known for essentially creating the Tommy John surgery as well, he did the reconstructive surgery on uh, Hershiser's shoulder. I believe they said something like it, it, the muscle and the tendons that look like have been beat with a hammer, like a meat tenderizer. That's how much uh, pressure he'd put on his arm. This obviously things were in a little bit of dire straits. And from what I understand, the reconstructive surgery that he did, uh, a it was a procedure that would end up essentially revolutionizing shoulder surgery in baseball, as I understand it. Uh, so a little bit of fun history knowledge there. Now, the surgery would end Hershiser's season in 1991, and I'm sorry, in 1990, and we wouldn't see him pitch again until May 29th of the following year. And when he comes back here in 1991, Hershiser was no longer the same pitcher. He wasn't a bad pitcher or, or anything by any means, but his velocity dropped and he became more of a full contact and command pitcher for a, a really the large part and never throws more than five complete games in a single season for the rest of his career. He goes 7-2 upon his return with a respectable 3.46 ERA and 112 innings pitched and a 1.29 whip, which really, all things considered, was pretty good when you factor in how severe the injury was. You'd expect some rust, and certainly some of that shows there, but all in all, 
12, not too bad. Now, the Dodgers aren't very good. They missed the playoffs again. And actually, in fact, for the rest of Hershiser's Dodger tenure, they wouldn't make the playoffs at all. Now, in 1992, at the age of 33, Hershiser's really a solid workhorse, showing uh, throwing about 210.2 innings with a 3.67 ERA and a 1.32 whip and 130 strikeouts and a 10-15 and record. He practically repeats that season in 1993 with a 3.67 ERA and a 1.27 whip and, a, and 141 strikeouts with a 12-14 and record. The... Moving into 1994, the accursed 1994 season rears its ugly head again as the strike ends the season early, while in his final season with the Dodgers, Hershiser throws 135.1 innings with a 3.79 ERA, heading into his first offseason as a free agent, which, for the record, after a player strike at 35 years old with a recent major injury, it really wasn't the optimal timing to become a free agent. And the Dodgers, uh, at this point, had planned on signing Hideo Nomo. Uh, if you want to go back to that whole uh, sweepstakes, go back a couple episodes of when I talked about Hideo, uh, Hideo Nomo. And so they let Hershiser know that because of that, they were not planning to resign him. And after courting many suitors, Hershiser said he wanted to sign with the team that gave him the best shot at winning. And so he signs with the, the young, up-and-coming Cleveland team because he felt that they had the best shot at winning baseball games, and oh boy, was he ever right. Now, this is the point where, in my life, at 10 years old, Oral Hershiser enters my life, but the 1995 season gets off to a late start, thanks to the uh, aforementioned player strike, and Hershiser's a pretty successful first season in the Forest City. Mostly surviving at this point on cutting and command, he throws 167.1 innings with a 3.87 ERA, 111 strikeouts and a 1.39 whip and a 16 and 6 record. Now I want to make a caveat here real quick because if you look at Hershiser's numbers, those all sound a little high. But actually, if you come back down and look at his ERA plus numbers for that time period, so in 1995, with that 3.87 ERA, that's that was worth uh, a 121 ERA plus. So, if you remember how plus statistics work, that means he was 21% better than the average pitcher in 1995 based on the places he pitched. Now, why do I bring that up? Because I think I'm going to rattle off some numbers as we go through the years here, especially in the American League, where you're going to be like, huh, those are ERAs over four, and those are high numbers. And it's important to keep in mind that the, the mid-1990s and the late 1990s are probably the greatest offensive era in baseball history, and also was a period of rampant steroid use and is a difficult time period to put into consideration of how, like, how do we look at those numbers? How do we consider the offensive numbers? How do we look at pitchers who pitched in that era? And I think it is a mistake to off the cuff feel like those numbers are the same as a pitcher in a different era. We might say by today's standards, like a 3.87 ERA is not very good, but by by that era standards, it was pretty darn good. It was 21% better than average. Like I said, it's just worth noting that, that, that those numbers, you got to put them in the proper context and perspective. Now, Cleveland makes the playoffs that year, and Hershiser turns in a vintage playoff run that would make him a Lake Erie legend, so to say. First in the ALDS against Boston, he makes one start going 7.1 innings pitched without giving up a run with seven strikeouts, getting the win in game two as Cleveland sweeps the series in three games. In the ALCS against Seattle, he makes two starts, getting wins in Game 2 and Game 5, going eight innings and giving up one earned run in Game 2, and throwing six innings with one earned run in Game 5. Overall, he throws 14 innings in the series, getting two wins with 15 strikeouts and with a 0.86 whip, which earns him ALCS MVP honors. And that's right, you've heard correct. At this point, he has been named the MVP of three different playoff series. Two that got his team into the World Series, and one in the World Series itself. That's pretty impressive. In the World Series against Atlanta, he makes two more starts, going 1-1, one and one, throwing 14 more innings, giving up just four earned runs with 13 strikeouts, and a .86 whip once again. Unfortunately, Cleveland loses to Atlanta in six games. Don't even get me started. I don't want to talk about it. But it certainly wasn't Hershiser's fault. Now, in 1996, Hershiser turns 37, and for the first time in his career for a full season, he turns in an ERA over four. 
Before that, he put together 11 full seasons with an ERA below 4. Overall, he throws 206 innings with a 4.24 ERA. It's worth noting once again there. That is with uh, a 115 ERA+. plus. So again, still 15% better than the average pitcher that year. With 125 strikeouts and a 1.43 whip and a 15-9 and record. Now Cleveland makes the playoffs again, but loses in the ALDS against Baltimore. Hershiser makes one more start in the series and has a decent start, throwing uh, five innings and giving up three earned runs with three strikeouts, but Cleveland would lose. 1997 would be the 38-year-old Hershiser's final year in Cleveland, and it was a memorable one. He throws 195.1 innings with a 14-6 record and a 4.47 ERA, which was a good for a 105 ERA+. Plus. And he has 107 strikeouts and a 1.37 whip. Cleveland will make another deep playoff run to the World Series this year. He makes two starts in the ALDS against New York, throwing 11.1 innings pitched with five earned runs and a 1.41 whip and four strikeouts. In the ALCS against Baltimore, he finds redemption from last year, making one start throwing seven scoreless innings with seven strikeouts and four hits. Now, once again in the World Series, unfortunately, this time, they run into the to just an absolute gangbusters Marlins team here. Hershiser truly struggles for the first time in the playoffs, giving up 13 earned runs over 10 innings without taking a loss, pitching in two starts as Cleveland will lose to the Marlins in seven games. L- listen, it was traumatic for 12-year-old Dan. I don't like talking about it, so we'll move on. But, but know that I, I may have held a grudge against the Marlins for a long time. Uh, like I said, don't like to talk about it. <laughs> After the 1997 season, Cleveland starts to kind of dis- not dismantle parts of the World Series team. They just tried to start shaking things up and moving forward. And Hershiser ends up moving on from the Guardian uh, from the Guardians to the Giants, where he throws 202 innings with a 4.41 ERA. That this is where we finally start to see some some weakness. That's a 91 ERA plus for for Hershiser and. He then moves to the Mets in 1999. Now, 40 years old at this point, he still throws 179 innings with a 4.58 ERA. That was good for a 97 ERA plus. Basically, he's an average pitcher at that point. And he uh, has 89 strikeouts and a 1.408 whip. The Mets make the playoffs, and in his final playoff run, Hershiser pitches out of the bullpen exclusively. And across the playoffs, throws 5.1 scoreless innings as the Mets fall to Atlanta in the NLCS. Now, post Y2K, Hershiser would return to the Dodgers for one last hurrah. He throws 24 innings and gets just absolutely lit up. The, the, the writing was on the wall, and when the Dodgers release him, Hershiser finally decides to hang it up and retires. Now, his life in baseball is far from over, though. He would serve as an analyst for ESPN in 2001 before becoming the Rangers pitching coach from 2002 to 2005 and then returning to TV work at ESPN. He did analysis for the Little League World Series for ABC and eventually joined the marquee Sunday night baseball team in 2010 for selling it as an analyst for the Dodgers, where I believe he still works in some capacity. And that's the career of one Oral Hershiser. I, I think it has a lot more excellence and dominance than he ever really gets credit for. And I genuinely think that if Cy Young voters had more information made better decisions at the time, or if his shoulder held up, we'd certainly be talking about him as more than just the record holder for the most consecutive scoreless innings. When even then, it's still a pretty darn consecutive, pretty darn impressive career, and one heck of a legacy to hang your hat on. Now, of course, the question is whether or not he's a Hall of Fame worthy candidate, and then, of course, we also need the rank Hershiser. But first, before we get there, let's take our last break. Okay, welcome back. Like I said, the question is: Is Oral Hershiser a Hall of Fame worthy pitcher? I truly do believe so. Was he one of the most dominant pitchers of his era? I, th- I think so. From 1984 until he hurts his shoulder in 1990, only four pitchers threw more innings than Hershiser's 1,449 innings over that stretch. But Hershiser's 2.68 ERA over those innings was better than all four of those pitchers by almost a full run. He's third in wins over that time period, despite playing a lot of that time for bad Dodgers teams. His 23 shutouts is the most over that time period, and he was fifth in complete games and 12th in strikeouts. His his 132 ERA plus is third over that time period, and just seven points behind Roger Clemens. Add in, you know, he won a Cy Young. 
He had two more deserved Cy Young-worthy seasons, and that certainly feels like one of the most dominant pitchers of their time. So I think that qualifies. And when it comes to the shortened peak, because that's what everyone's going to talk about because of the injury, we've made concessions for other pitchers with short peaks, like Sandy Koufax or Addie Josh, and I don't, I just don't see why that doesn't apply here either. It's not quite, I understand if you want to hold against Vita Blue, his peak ending because he did it to himself. Uh, that's not how I view addiction or how, how I feel about that, but I, I get that. But this is his shoulder gave out, and I think that if we're going to do that for Koufax, if we're going to do it for Josh, we should be able to do it for, for Hershiser too. In fact, if you look, Hershiser's career 56 war is eight more than Koufax, as well as recent Hall of Fame inductee Jim Cat, and is just one war short of Whitey Ford, and nearly 10 war more than Dizzy Dean. All those players are Hall of Famers. I also feel if you played for better teams during uh, some of those 15 lost Dodger years where he lost a ton of quality starts because he didn't get run support or bullpen support, that might have gotten him up over 250 wins, which is a, a real game changer for his legacy as well. Oh, and in case I haven't mentioned it before, he has the all-time record for consecutive scoreless innings. And by the way, also has a, another 34-inning scoreless inning stretch in his career. That certainly helps his argument. And that's before we even get to his playoff, playoff excellence. Only seven pitchers in history have thrown more innings in the playoffs than Hershiser's 132 innings pitched in the playoffs while maintaining an ERA under three. Only four of those pitchers had an ERA below Hershiser's 2.59 playoff ERA mark, which, for the record, is astonishingly good considering how many innings he threw in the playoffs. There's Bill Foster who had a 2.54 ERA, so barely below it. John Lester, 2.51, again, barely below it. Mariano Rivera at a ridiculous 0.70 ERA. And Kurt Schilling at 2.23. That's it. That's a pretty good company to be in. Oh, and he has two championship series MVPs to his name and a World Series MVP. I mean, like, we're talking about potentially one of the greatest playoff pitchers of all time. I don't even think there's an argument about it. And now, it really doesn't have as much culturally going for him, being a white dude from Canada. I think his statistical resume speaks for him. I think his playoff resume speaks for him. He's probably going to go down as one of the greatest Dodgers ever. To me, that's a Hall of Fame caliber player. And I don't really think it's a difficult choice, personally. But I get why some people consider him borderline. But for me, it's a pretty easy, yes, he should be a Hall of Famer. And I hope at some point one of the committees gets that one. Okay, so with that determined, let's rank Hershiser on our all-time list. But first, though, let's revisit the list itself real quick. So... To rattle off the top uh, 15 here, we've got Sadaharu O at number one, Satchel Page at number two, Josh Gibson at number three, Mickey Mantle at number four, Greg Maddox at number five, Mike Trout at number six, Ichiro at number seven, George Brett at number eight, Adrian Beltre at number nine, Shohei Otani at number 10, Clayton Kershaw at number 11, Edgar Martinez at number 12, Sandy Koufax at number 13, Tony Gwynn at number 14, and Hank Greenberg at number 15. Jumping down to number 20 is Kenny Lofton. Number 25 is David Ortiz. Number 30 is Ryan Sandberg. Number 35 is Home Run Baker. Number 40 is Corey Kluber. Number 45 is Kyle Hendricks. Number 50 is Whitey Ford. Number 55 is Tony Stone. Number 60 is Jason Bay. Number 65 is Mike Sweeney. Number 66 is Herb Score. Number 67 is Mark Pryor, and number 68 is James Paxton. So, looking at that list, I think we can cut to the chase here a little bit as we're rounded up here at nearly an hour. One of the reasons I chose Hershiser is because his numbers and his profile so closely resemble Vita Blues. So, I, th- I think it's basically is a question of does he go in front of or below, behind Vita Blue? Because I put him ahead of Corey Kluber, but also wouldn't put him past Roberto Alomar at number 38. I think that when you consider how close their career war numbers are and how short but amazing their peaks were, I think that's the comparison to make, right? So they both pitched around 17 seasons. Blue won 209 wins while Hershiser won 204 games. I kind of talked about the wins a little bit. If I thought if Hershiser played for better teams for a large chunk of his career, that might be different. But then again, there's also an argument that he won a ton of games with the, with the, with the Cleveland run. So maybe maybe it all comes out in the wash there. But uh, Blue is a better career ERA at 
but he pitched in a far easier offensive era than Hershiser, and that's evidenced by Hershiser's superior 112 ERA plus compared to Blue's 108 ERA plus. They had roughly the same amount of strikeouts and innings pitched, while Blue had way more complete games. They both have one Cy Young, while Blue also has an MVP, and won more World Series team-wise, but was generally terrible in the playoffs. With an ERA over four, especially when you compare it to Hershiser, who might be one of the five or so greatest postseason pitchers ever, it has that World Series MVP to his name. And then you go culturally, and you go Blue is a member of the Black Aces, and one of the greatest black pitchers of all time, which carries huge cultural importance and weight, and that matters to me. But then you go to the other side, and that cultural importance is hit hard by Blue's legal struggles and drug addiction issues. And again, you know how I feel about drug addiction. You know, I'm not treating it like some massive failing of Blue's or like this idea that, oh, he just did it to himself or that he doesn't deserve understanding with that situation. So again, I don't feel like it cancels out the positive cultural contributions, but it obviously does impact that story and does impact how we view Blue regardless. And I think, and I'll admit, I'm not completely convinced. It's hard to beat that 1988 season from Hershiser. Like I said, it, it's basically what if you wrote a movie about the perfect pitching season. And, man, that, 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 that ends up popping up more in the story of baseball a little bit more often than Blues does. Now, some of that is Dodger bias and probably some of it's racism. But you still, you really can't talk about baseball in any way in 1988 without focusing on Hershiser's season. But then again, you could probably say the same thing about Blue's rookie season and his early breakout seasons, because that's really, I mean, myths and legends should be written about those seasons. I'm, I'm torn. I think these guys are, you talk about 1A and 1B, like the, these guys are right there with each other. And so it's probably recency bias, but I'll probably give it to Hershiser here. I think it's a coin toss, honestly. And but I think that 1988 season is just too good, especially... I think the part that puts him over the edge is that postseason excellence. That, that that's just that is a huge feather in uh, Hershiser's cap there. And like I said, from there I can't see him catching up to Roberto Almar. Roberto Almar is almost twenty WAR on Hershiser. That, that's that's a, a lot to try and catch up to. So that makes Oral Hershiser the new number thirty nine on our list. And obviously that's a really respectable spot on the list. And I hope by now that I've convinced you that Hershiser's underrated and that he's essential to telling the story of baseball and that he should be a Hall of Famer. That's our episode. Thank you so much for, for joining us this week here on Long Ball Legacies. I think I usually like to do these in threes, and so we'll see. I think right now I'm kind of leaning towards doing like a Tim Hudson was one that I thought about. It was another kind of comparable player. I try and go with someone a little more modern. Oh, I guess that he pretty much pitched, yeah, in like the 2000s or so. So maybe Tim Hudson was one I was leaning towards, or maybe we'll go another guy I was thinking of was like Cat, uh, Catfish Hunter, Kevin Brown were, were a couple guys who were like right in that same area. Those are some guys I was tossing around. We'll see who I decide I want to kind of take a look at. But uh, until then, I'll see you next week on Friday. If you have any questions or comments or you want to debate my rankings or anything like that, you can reach me at Daniel J. Port on Twitter, or you can reach the podcast at LB Legacies on Twitter as well, or you can email the podcast at longballlegacies at gmail.com. Please feel free to reach out. I'd love to, love to discuss things with you or debate things or just, you know, talk baseball. Feel free to reach on out. And otherwise, enjoy the rest of your Friday. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, folks. And thank you so much. Have a great rest of your weekend.